I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Brandon Hobson. And this is the all-new Concavity Show. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to episode 60 of Concavity Show. We're with Brandon Hobson who is the author of the brand new novel, The Removed, which just came out in 2021. Uh, He's also the author of novels, Where the Dead Sit Talking, which was a finalist for the 2018 National Book Award for Fiction and the winner of the Reading the West Book Award. Two other novels from Brandon are Desolation of Avenues Untold and Deep Ellum. Brandon's work has appeared in lots of places like uh, The Believer, The Paris Review Daily, McSweeney's Issue 61, Conjunctions Noon. He's appeared in the Pushcart Prize Anthology. And Brandon is the Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at the New Mexico State University and teaches in the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. Brandon is an enrolled citizen of the Cherokee Nation Tribe of Oklahoma. And Brandon, it is our great pleasure to have you on the show to talk about primarily your new novel, The Removed, uh, which is brand new, which Matt and I absolutely loved, uh, as well as some of your other work. And, uh, and just dig in and talk about books and literature with you. So really excited to have you. Thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And pleasure. it's really special for me because I feel like I've known Brandon a very long time um, <laughs> through the internet. And, you know, yeah. there are a lot of people out there, maybe even people listening to this right now who I have known in some capacity, but not had a chance to actually sit down and talk to. So to be able to sit down and talk is really special and awesome. And Brandon, I'm trying to think like when we first probably emailed, talking over 20 years ago. um, It it had to have been 2000 or 01. Maybe it was even the late 90s. Maybe 99, maybe even. Maybe 99. Yeah. I remember you asked to see the letter that Wallace had written me, and then I faxed it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's how long ago we're talking about. Like the idea yeah. of scanning something in was out of, I mean, we didn't right. even consider didn't exist that. Yet. No, yeah. but I used faxes all the time for work. And so you fax it to my work number. And uh, I still have that copy, you know, in a folder somewhere here. Um, I- I think I was, I, yeah, I was, in, I was doing social work because I remember the mm-hmm. office where I went in there and, and faxing that to you. Um, I already got questions for you. So people who don't, <laughs> people who don't know this story. So Brandon, I guess you had joined the Wallace list, right? You were on the, the Wallace list mm-hmm. and you said like, oh, I had written, Brandon had written to Wallace in like 1993. This is before Infinite Jest was published. And of course, he wrote you back. Pretty decent sized letter, full page letter. Uh, You want to tell us what you said to him and what he said to you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I I had been reading him for a couple of years. I think I first discovered Wallace in 91 or 92. And I'll tell you what. That's early. It was well, and it was it was pre-internet, and and I used to go to a to a library in Oklahoma City, and just you know just walking up and down the aisles, and I I, I remember 
finding both the broom in the system and girl with curious hair and looking at them and, and thinking, wow, these books, both of these sound fantastic. I'm going to check these out, you know, and I, I read them and that was really, that was really what did it for me back then. Um, then I later, uh, not long after that, found a copy of Conjunctions, issue 17, which I have here, um, in, in a mall in Dallas. I was in Dallas with friends and happened to find this. And he had a story, Order of Flux in Northampton. And I thought, this is the guy that I, I read. I read that story and just absolutely was blown away. Anyway, so he just very quickly just flew to the top of my, my radar in terms of like, this guy is amazing. And um, so in 93, I was just beginning a, um, doing an MA in Oklahoma. And I used to write every now and then I would write to, I, most people didn't write back. Right. But sure. <laughs> I, I wrote a few, I wrote to uh, Charles Simic, the poet, he actually wrote me a, wrote me back. Um, but I wrote to, to Wallace and in that letter, from what I remember, I don't have it saved anywhere, but I just remember basically telling that story and saying, yeah, I found your books. Um, I, I was working uh, in B Dalton bookstore at the time. In the mall. In the mall, in the mall. Uh-huh. And, and, and saying, um, it's this is my other than the library i'm 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 working in the in a bookstore and just um trying to start graduate school and i have no idea um i love to write fiction and your your work that i've read so far has really really inspired me um in ways that are difficult for me to explain and um and and feeling very lost and sort of and 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 then he wrote back this just extraordinarily nice letter saying, you know, basically, um, yeah, grad, grad school is, is, is very hard. Um, you know, the, uh, I, I wish people thought I was as talented and as you seem to think I am, right? It was, which just, a statement like that, it just sort of just blew me away that, uh, you know that really people don't think yeah that, it's either like false humility or something else yeah right right yeah and um uh, uh and then basically said you know don't don't be in a big rush to try to publish stuff take your time with it uh, at at 22 i think i was 22 at the time and mm. and he said you know i i wish i had done that at 22 it's take the time to work on it love it loving it loving the work and, and, and hating it and, and making, uh, you know, making it as, as true to yourself as, as you take time, the publishing stuff will come, just stick with it basically. And it was just a super encouraging, nice letter. And, and I've still got the original. I did share a copy with the ransom center. Um, oh, cool. I, I, I didn't send them the original. I sent them a copy, right? I still, I just, I just couldn't part with the, with the original. I don't blame uh, you. Yeah, that's fair. I think I think a lot of the stuff in there is photocopied, right? Um, not originals. 
No, most of it is originals. Oh, is it? Um, but I will say that uh, Wallace famously wrote everyone back, almost everyone that wrote yeah. him. But over time, his responses got shorter. He wrote on a lot of postcards or he he loved this method of you sent him a letter, a typed letter. He would hand write response in the margins and then send it back. I've seen several like that. So you're one of the few, I think, who got like the full treatment. Um, <laughs> because I mean, honestly, he wasn't he wasn't famous at the time. He had been, you know, he'd gotten some attention for his first book, but that was in '87. Hmm. Um, you know hmm. that that he had gotten that attention, and he was living in Illinois. He hadn't finished Infinite Jest. He's still writing. So I think you wrote to him at a pretty pretty interesting I, time in his yeah, life. Yeah, for sure. I remember though though that. He, I think he was living in Syracuse because I remember the oh okay Syracuse the postage the, on the, was from the, there. Yeah. the postage saying Syracuse New York and thinking oh wow I guess mm. he lives because my only access to him at all was just through um, girl with curious hair which said he's studying I think the bio in that on that book says he's studying um, uh, working Harvard. on another. At Harvard, right? Harvard, so I just right. assumed assumed he was, you know, in Cambridge or something. And and oh, yeah. um, so, uh, yeah, it was. Um, and what did you think? So when Infinite Jest came out, I mean, obviously you you bought it right away, and then of course, yeah, I yeah. I remember, and and I was working at a different and independent bookstore at that time, and we we got him to come. He did come, oh, wow. and, and um, cool. But so I have several signed books from him but um the postcards you know they you, you probably noticed yeah. there were yeah. postcards came at the beginning that little brown was sending out and i remember yeah, yeah. and and their catalog and you know that that kind of famous picture of him um in the bandana in the bandana reading or whatever he's writing um came in the catalog and just uh it it being the catalog copy saying that it was compared to the the, the glass family, right? Which I thought, huh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Um, but Salinger's glass family, right? And uh, so, uh, I, yeah, when the book came, I was, uh, we, we actually got a, uh, an ARC. I, I don't have the galley, but uh, a buddy of mine that worked with me at the time, I'm still, still in, in contact with him, um, has that galley. And oh. I remember he was like, That's I was cool so excited. He's like, yeah, go ahead. And he was the buyer for the store. And he's like, yeah, you can take it and read it, you know? And, and I was so excited. Um, so yeah. And then Wallace came to the store. We, we got him to um, on, on his, his tour to, this was before also, I didn't know that we, we stopped by the, the hotel where he was staying and, left me and two other guys from the store and said, Hey, if you want to have a beer before, <laughs> before, before, after the reading, um, contact us at the store and we'll be glad to, you know, we were just wanting to hang out with him, not knowing he was, he was in, uh, in recovery yeah, yeah. in recovery. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so, and again, you know, that was, I, I don't remember being even on the internet at that time. Mm. Uh, I, I, yeah. We and I worked in the back and doing returns and receiving, and we used to listen to the radio. But I remember listening to NPR um, and Bookworm and, and Silverblatt having oh, them yeah. too. Yeah, cool. uh, we listened to uh, Bookworm all the time back there. Oh, you know? sweet! I loved receiving. I worked in a CD store, record store in my yeah. early twenties, and when I finally got trained on receiving, I was just like jackpot. 
Yeah, up in a room just listening to music for like six yeah. hours in a row it's don't just, have to deal with customers seeing yeah. all the new stuff coming into the store setting like a pile aside for myself that i'm going to spend my paycheck on exactly <laughs> yeah it was like that with the with the books too yeah, we would just but, listen to music or whatever yeah. back there it was so great that's awesome <laughs> well i appreciate you telling us that story because like i say that's how you know you and i met a long time ago and you know the internet was very uh primitive back yeah. in those days yeah. in, in the late 90s i think you know nick started howling fantods around 97 98 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they had message boards on there and you know i didn't know anyone else who had read the book when i read it and so i was eager to find someone to talk to and i was you know google didn't exist right i was on right. like yeah. alta vista and ask jeeves of like yeah just plot Ex- and like excite right there was no google right this is before that so i was uh, it was hard to find someone else to talk to right. but somehow i found the the email list and that it changed my life. I mean, because I, yeah. I met people on there who just an extremely eclectic bunch who had a lot in common. Mm-hmm. And especially after I moved to New York, but um, you know, and people like Brandon Hobson at the time, Brandon had not published a word. No. <laughs> and, right. uh, Brandon, so I, you know, I like to brag. I'm like, I knew the guy way back. Then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whenever, like you said, so you did an MA, the, not an MFA or you did an MFA. Work? I, I, my MA was uh, just in English. It's, oh, it's yeah. I, I didn't do an MFA. I didn't even know there was an MFA. You just teach then. an MFA program. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I went on, I went on later and I got a PhD. Oh yeah. I went, what, in fact, not just in 2000, 2009, I went back. Um, oh, cool. Mainly for the, for the teaching. So I could, so I could teach, uh, cause I wanted to teach college full time. Yeah. And at the time I thought, well, I mean, I've published some stuff. I don't know if, if that will help me. I at least just want to teach comp and mm-hmm. maybe some literature classes or something. So I, I did the, the PhD at Oklahoma State um, because it was my, my oldest son was a baby at the time. So I quit my, quit my other job and, and, and started the PhD. And, and yeah. we lived very, very uh, poorly. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of in that phase too. My wife just did a PhD in the last three years, and we took our one-year-old daughter to New Zealand. So it's yeah. like <laughs> kind of like taking a few yeah. steps backwards for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, uh, I got that. Well, but yeah, you, I just did did a P, an MA uh, cool. early on. Yeah. So walk us through your kind of history. Uh, become like as a burgeoning mm-hmm. fiction writer. Um, who who are some other well, of your big influences starting out? Uh, in addition to Wallace, like. What's the what's the the genesis story there? I think um, so. Early on, I was when I was an undergraduate. Uh, when I got my bachelor's in English, I read. Uh, I took the introduction to to literature class, right, and um, really, really liked uh, Raymond Carver's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked Laurie Moore at the time. Dennis Johnson, yep, of course. Or these. People that I was discovering as an undergraduate that I had not ever heard of before. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I, again, with you know, that was probably right before that was because I think I had just graduated or was graduating with my bachelor's when I discovered Wallace. Um, so, but, but before before that, no, it was it was um, mainly just in. Who I was reading in class, you know, uh, really um, 
Dostoevsky and yeah, yeah. Uh, Kafka and, and yeah. just <laughs> all all that. I brings a lot of familiar bells for me too in my early twenties. Yeah. yeah, doing an English minor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And oh. so, uh, and then I, 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 of course, studied more doing my MA and and uh, really enjoyed enjoyed that. Did you do a, a thesis component to your MA in English? I did. I did a. What was I did a uh, it's terrible. I would never <laughs> show anyone any of the stories out of that. Like a short uh, story collection, kind of. It was. It was a yeah. story collection. Yeah. yeah. That. Um, but I, it was part of my part of it. Was I was trying to parody purposefully parody different writers' styles um, and and yeah. you know and and uh, but. It, it was, it, yeah, it's, uh, it's awful. But um, at the time I thought, you know, I, this is, this is kind of experimental maybe stuff that yeah. I'm doing here by, by showing a, a wide range of what I, <laughs> yeah, different yeah. styles that I can, you know, and yeah. uh, little did I know that it was all just really, really bad. Um, <laughs> what was, what was the kind of feedback that you got from supervisors and you know, when you did your defense and stuff? Well, that so um, I I took a class with Stuart, a couple of classes I think with Stuart O'Nan, and still to this day I've become really close with him. He's he's, he's a great friend of mine, and uh, he was young at the time. He was thirty, I don't know, thirty three or thirty four at the time, and he was a visiting uh, writer at at University of Central Oklahoma where I was doing a master's. And I thought, oh, this is, this just looks like some great fiction writing class right mm. and um he uh he he was great i mean really uh, introduced me to a lot of people i had not like tim o'brien right and and people that i'd not read before mm. and, and, uh, um so uh, he was he was so i remember i wrote a story um about uh a, a guy who's living in a dumpster, right? <laughs> living living in a dumpster, and um, you know, waiting for for someone to show up for for like this for a drug deal or something, you know. And um, he was really really encouraging. I mean, he he loved that that I, I was taking risks and you know, writing about this really kind of gritty life mm-hmm. and and. Um, and and so he was really encouraging early on, and I've, I've always uh, been thankful for that. Support. So your mentors weren't telling you your work at the time was terrible. You just feel that way so many years later in hindsight. <laughs> That's there good. was another. There's another guy. Yeah. Well, no, there was a guy named Ed Allen. I took a class with. Uh, wrote a book called Mustang Sally, a novel, um, and then later on taught at South Dakota. And then he won. He had his collection that won the Flannery O'Connor award. Oh, cool! He he used to publish. He published a few stories in the New Yorker. Well, he was a he was a visiting professor there uh, also, and he did not like my work at all. <laughs> yeah, he was. In, in fact, I think he's one of the the one that I may have mentioned in my letter to Wallace when I said I took you know taking a creative writing class. I love to write, you know, but I just feel like. I don't know that I'm very good at it yet. And, and do you have any encouragement? Um, because I have a professor who's, um, you know, really, really on me about, yeah. you know, a lot. It was, it was, 
very humiliating. Um, I remember a, a couple of us, I think we wrote two stories and, and yeah. yeah, he just really ripped me apart, which was oh. probably good, I guess, at the time, you know, <laughs> sure. the stories were, were horrible. But Formative, uh, hard knocks has, and all that. Has Ed yeah. Allen ever been nominated for the National Book Award? <laughs> 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 maybe he helped but maybe he, of course he may of have course. formed something right of and course he was doing his job he was doing his job but what a fire yeah that, yeah that brief mention of uh you being a social worker though i mean open my eyes because i want to get into the book now because yeah. the, the mom in the story is a social worker and it's kind of a thread oh, yeah. that goes through uh, actually a couple of your books um where the dead sit talking also has a, a social worker yeah. and um, maybe even in deep Ellum, I, I, there's, I went back and read deep Ellum in the past month. And I was like surprised to see some elements of your later work showed up in that book too. Um, and especially the family component. So this is one family, a mother and a father who have two sons and a daughter. This, one of their sons, Ray Ray has been killed at a young age, I think 15 years old. Um, by and a police the, officer, right? And then another child from the agency where she works. I think it's a Cherokee agency, right? Or is it a mm, Cherokee Nation? Cher yeah. Cherokee huh? Nation. It's a foster child, kind of appears and, um, in a way, maybe fills that void. So this is mm -hmm. this is where I want to get into some questions about the book for you because. Um, you know, I feel like some people out there who are listening have probably read Where the Dead Sit Talking. And, uh, you know, after you wrote that book, or, or what's the genesis? I assume you wrote this after that, like sequentially. What, what was it about the story that, that came to you and, and said, you have to do this next? I was thinking, okay, so originally I wanted to write a trilogy of, of Cherokee King books. This is going to be a, and, and my next novel will is will be along the, the same third lines. one okay. oh, cool. the third one right so so it's it's come out of a trilogy um <clears throat> at least now unless I, I i i get some kind of william t volman status and and feel like <laughs> oh no it's gonna be seven books right <laughs> it's a, this is a seven book uh period i i don't know i mean but originally i was thinking i want to i want to write three uh and and have this trilogy specifically focused on um native identity yeah and uh, not necessarily like totally related characters or families, but just right. thematically, there's this, this thematically, yeah, yeah, not, yeah not, totally. not any kind of real, yeah, yeah, relation. Thank you for putting that out because yeah, it's, sure. it's really just um, focused much on native identity and specifically Cherokee identity mm -hmm. in Oklahoma. And so the third book is um, I, I I'm working on it and um but uh well you've you've had great success with the, with those um uh so far i mean they're both excellent and you know yes. you got tons of uh, accolades but you know this one being called the removed in a way deals with the cherokee history of removal mm -hmm. in a sort of explicit way that uh where the dead sit talking didn't so i i guess i want to talk to you a little bit about um uh, that that title, the removed, right? Because mm -hmm. in a way, you have a child here who has been removed from a family, yes. and that another child who shows up that uh, 
has been removed from his family and placed as part of a placement with a foster agency into another family. And then, you know, what if that child gets removed from that placement? Um, and, you know, I feel that there's a lot going on there with, you know, just as a microcosm of removal, but underpinning all of this is a lot of Cherokee history, starting with the name of the family, which is the Ichota family, right? And this is an important name in Cherokee history. Um, do you want to tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the Ichota uh, um, Treaty, right? It, uh, the Ichota family is named after the Ichota Treaty. Um, that before removal uh, in in Georgia um, becomes an important name, right? In this treaty, and I think for for me, I wanted to point to specific. Uh, to, part of it is I didn't want, let me say what I didn't want to do, which was to try to offer an explanation, right? An explanation or, or to, to, to teach something um, like, you know, very in a textbook way, because I, I, I hear a lot of readers that say, I really want to learn about um, Native life and Native history, you know? And, and I, I mean, then, you know, go, there are plenty of books out there. That will right. that will you know talk about the history. So I didn't want to like novel did, to be like didactic in that right, social studies kind of way or something. Yeah. yeah, not didactic at all. But but to have little sort of you know um, uh, uh, clues that um, well maybe not clues but references um, to historical uh, moments. Totally. Yeah, yeah, and, and you do this beautiful interweaving of that through the primary characters in your story. Sala, there's two. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, with yeah, yeah, Chala, who is named oh, wow. um, it, actually Chala is is uh, part of Chalagi, which is the word Cherokee in Cherokee language. Hmm. So, so Chala, um, you know, is is actually sort of based on a, a real man named Chali, who. Uh, and I actually looked killed. this up a little bit more and oh, watched uh, by the government yeah. a, a video about him too. And I mean, his book there was. Um, Sequoia, right, which is another prominent, though the person who figured out the syllabary and wrote down the language basically mm -hmm. was Sequoia. And that was the main character in Where the Dead Sit Talking. Mm -hmm. So yes. that's when you say like these hints and clues are there. Um, there's also, so we've we talked about Ray Ray is the, the child who was killed um, by the police. It's this huge absence. And, you know, I think for me, that was part of the feeling too that um you know this native population is carrying around like some kind of absence and there's something missing you know a person missing um from their lives and is dead right and the, mm -hmm. this there's a lot in the book about um the dead and the spirits the spirit world uh where do people go uh, you know what are, do you want to talk to us a little bit about how cherokees view you know, the role of the dead. Well, I'm not a traditional, so much a traditional Cherokee uh, in terms of my beliefs. Um, but I know, I, I know that there are some beliefs in that there is a question of justice and where, where souls go temporarily until justice is resolved. And that 
becomes a place uh, called the Darkening Land. And these stories in the traditional stories of, of the Darkening Land, um, there's no, really no major description of it, right? It just, it's just a place. It's just the Darkening Land where these, where these people go and, or where people go in general. And so I, I wanted in this novel to make it on one hand very different um, from this world, but, uh, but in, in terms of, you know, people are coughing dust and seeming very sort of ghost-like and, and so, or so, sort of zombie-like, I guess. But on the other hand, it's not too different because, you know, people are still making video games and in fact, they're making live, live shoot, <laughs> shooting games, yeah. you know, to, um, which is taking it that step, like, yeah, it's, it's a fine, I feel like it's, there's a fine line between reality and fantasy yeah. uh, with this book that um, uh, you don't have to, I, I hope that, you know, you don't have to see this as a spiritual book, but you can see it maybe as fantastical. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, that, that section reminded me, Brandon, of, have you read Chronic City by Jonathan Lethem? who actually blurbs this book. I, I, I have not read that one. Um, yeah. yeah. So this is like, there's a part in that book where they're, the characters become obsessed with these things called chaldrons, which are kind of these things that you can buy on eBay or something. But they're like, they're kind of eth ethereal and not really physical objects. And it's mm -hmm. really hard to wrap your head around what exactly is happening in this, but they, they become like so obsessed with them. And one of the characters, Richard Abnegg at, at one point says, I just, I just want to fuck it. <laughs> it's, it's like That's laugh out loud, right, funny yeah. moment. But yeah. like the the video game sequence of the of Edgar's friend who's like using him as a character to like record his body movements and stuff for this this bizarre kind of reality video game that he's making, almost yeah. has a, a similar quality to that. Where it's it's really hard to pin down exactly what's going on here. But like, I've got to read that book though because I've it's yeah, it's been cool. on my on my list for a while and but so, that's good there's a lot of wallace references in there as well it's okay. it's not it's not as good as this so edgar uh no, is the no, is, is the son who he's the son who's still alive but he's been geographically removed from the family and he's in new mexico and they're in oklahoma and mm -hmm. he is trying to get well he's on a journey i should say and they want him to return um, for this bonfire, which is part of their holiday oh and part of their remembrance of Ray Ray. Yeah. Um, but to me, this also mimics the geographic like removal of Cherokee tribe, right? And that geographically sure. they were in one place, which was the Southeastern United States, like you said, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, and were forcefully removed by force on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. So you've got them going this way. Edgar's in actually the other way, which New Mexico is sort of known for its Indian reservations too, right? Like right. Navajo reservation, massive. Mm -hmm. And he's moving from Albuquerque to, to go east, uh, you know, back eastward rather than this westward journey. So yeah. I thought that was a nice kind of mirror image of that journey. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I was trying to do, you know, and, yeah. and, and thinking about the whole thing is really thinking about displacement, removal and displacement, mm -hmm. you know, are such heavy themes um, in this, this trilogy that I'm, um, that I, that I want to do is, is really, and, and, and to do it in, in what I hope 
are in ways that haven't been done before when we're talking about native, um, at least in terms of fiction. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to approach it from a, from a, a, a wholly new um, way. Well, and I'm curious too about the relationships between the teenagers and adults in your books, um, because I, I feel like many of these teen characters seem like they don't fit in with their peers and they tend to gravitate towards these relationships with adults instead um, or often. And, you know, I'm, I'm just curious if that's, you know, something from your past or something that you um, see in other people who just don't fit in with their kind, even at a young age. With my part of what was great about seven years working in social work was I was able to be around <clears throat> families almost every day and, mm -hmm. and very, very difficult families um, who I, I've in no way even come close to writing about. And I, I sort of touch on it a little bit, you know, in terms of the, the way that there are some, I think, some com combativeness among, among them, but, um, or, or the issues, the you know, drug and alcohol issues. And, and, but that I, during those seven years of social work, two of those years I spent working entire only with entirely with youth youth who were locked up and in in a detention center and uh, youth who were on probation for uh, numerous things right and and going through the the court system and watching them until they go off to placement either long term and so, you're, yeah, and so your, your sympathy there is for, for these people who are making mistakes rather than, you know, it's a system in a way that dooms them, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think this, you know, this comes up in Deep Ellum too. And mm -hmm. uh, I want to put a plug in here for that book. If people have not picked it up, I think it's uh, a great book that needs more readers as well. Um, it's, a, it's your first book. It's a slim novel. And... It is also about a family, about someone returning home to, you know, a, kind of a wayward child returning home. Um, yeah. But, but it's, yeah. But it's also one of my favorite kind of books, Brandon, which is kind of just like a dude roaming around and you're in his head and like not a lot happens, you know what I mean? Like, I yeah, love yeah. that kind of a book. Yeah. Well, that, Sequoia that's is so, great for that and where know, the dead sit talking, know. right? Just learning about his obsessions with rosemary and like mm -hmm. this this fixation that occurs for him and in, in the household um where he's been placed as a foster child yeah I, yeah well thank you for for saying that and i think with those characters um i i feel like i'm such a more of a character writer i think than yeah. certainly plot you know yeah and um what the, the way that i picture them and and i i placed Deep Ellum in Deep Ellum, the Deep Ellum district in Dallas, because of my fascination with that area and just really, really loving that, that area and thinking, why has nobody written a novel about this area? It's just you amazing. wrote it. It's, so the, great, it's, the, it's great the great Deep Ellum novel. novel. You wrote it. <laughs> well, it, 
it, but it's really interesting because I that you know a small press uh, published that calamari archive, yeah. and 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 then my next book as well. It I, it it was really really difficult for me to get people to believe in 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 that book mm. early on. I could not get. Um, they just thought it was too weird, and 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 there are some there are some very difficult moments in Deep Ellum that aren't really fleshed out, but are hinted at um, some um, incest and and some abuse, and uh, so uh, you know it's 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 uh, it's it's in some ways kind of a difficult. Uh, subject matter yeah yeah but that that interest in you know the the kind of mistakes that young people make um you know i think edgar falls into that category of you know he's made a lot of mistakes and disappointed people in his family and yet there's still kind of this opportunity for redemption for him and uh you know he's on this journey somewhere between where he's at and where he needs to end up he ends up in the darkening land um but he's on this kind of redemption path and i you know when i was asking you earlier about like the dead or the spirit world i think part of that is just a general interest that i have in like the idea of uh, reincarnation right mm-hmm. and in a way mm-hmm. this child who shows up wyatt um is almost like a reincarnation of ray ray right the first yeah. son who has who has not been there Edgar's not right. Edgar's not Ray Ray. Like he's not the reincarnation. Oh, no. He's he's the fuck up, right? Right. And and part of that rebirth, right? Ancestors. Um, Edgar sees. He has a vision of his his ancestors crawling right through through the house in the middle of the night, and the way that the, the ancestors were crawling and, and dying um, on the trail and and that ancestral trauma right lingers especially for well, i hope that it in the book that it lingers for everyone yeah but that the idea of seeing someone's spirit in someone else not to sound again this is not to sound too new agey um <laughs> you know or, or but i think and think in what what I can say traditionally through a Cherokee lens is that we can see when a spirit is manifesting itself in someone else or uh, in nature and and certainly the land um, can remember trauma or then the land, can uh, manifest itself in in, uh, in in various ways or nature, and and that's a lot also to do with the bird imagery. The fowl, I, the the red fowl. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, and the yeah. red fowl. I think the obvious um, is it's a it's a kind of it's a metaphor for addiction on one hand, right? Because he he gets the red fowl when it's it's he's given by his friends when it's a it's a it's a baby red fowl. And he starts using, and then eventually it follows him around, and, and he can't get rid of it. It's constantly, you know, that that kind of. I, 
I've talked about this before, but I like the word foul because it sounds a lot more cryptic than chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Ch- chicken or, or or blue jay or dove or cardinal that have a little bit more sort of poetic. Uh, you know, foul sounds kind of like grackle. Grackle is kind of a, right. Yeah, it's got a, a dark uh, vibe to it. Yeah, yeah, and and so um, a lot of people have have asked me about that because of how I and I purposefully used repetition foul. I used it several times mm-hmm. um, early on, and really just to show that I was really using it as as a metaphor for the the addiction that has really. Um, crippled Edgar's life mm-hmm. at this point in the, in the story and that he can't get rid of it. It's always there. It's kind of like the spider bite metaphor that recurs in infinite jest. Sure. Spider bitten. Well, yeah. 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 Um, speaking mm-hmm. of the, the um, repetition reminds me, I wanted to ask you like on a craft level about putting this together um, because each section is kind of from the first person point of view of that character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did you approach that? Did you know right away that you wanted to just do this one character and then switch between, you know, five or six, or was it, you know, what was your thinking there? I originally had Maria's sections in third person. Mm-hmm. I had the entire section, or at least most, maybe not the entire all of her sections, but I had most of them in third person, but I had the other, I had Edgar's in first, uh, Chala's in first and um, Sonia's in first, but I had Maria's in third. And my editor at Echo really challenged me about rethinking that in that it felt unbalanced and almost that it was too distant it was too distant of a third person. And, and my fear was that, can I get inside the head of this older woman who's really lost a son? I, I'm, I was a little afraid I, I, of doing that. Right? I, well, I think, it was, I think it was a good choice to do that because I personally found Maria to be like the most endearing character in this novel. Like I just really... Well, she has you. such a beautiful softness to her and, and she's carrying, you know, all this trauma and that's I, familial and it's, you know, I a actually, result of systemic racism and all this stuff. Like, I, I actually spoke to a, a friend of my mother's who um, hmm. had lost uh, a teenage son hmm. and to really try to, to get that voice and some of those details. Yeah. Um, so that was, yeah, that's, uh, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that it, it's, interesting because Maria's voice uh, they say that certainly is the most endearing out of all I I I, I really I I like Edgar's sections the, I do too yeah. the most and most people don't they like <laughs> Ed, that I've t- they, at least that I've talked to they're like it was just too icky and, and oh, yeah. too strange and, yeah. and um, Maria th- has like a tender a real tenderness to it you know Edgar's has has a tenderness as well but it's it's like more of a has a, more of an edge to it because he's like in the shit you know he's yeah. like really really going through um addiction stuff he's displaced from his girlfriend and he's like really wrestling with with his home like to return to his home or not to celebrate to commemorate this traumatic 
event in his family. And it's like, seems really clear that he's been his, his person has been so informed by the loss of his older brother when he was really young. Right. Yeah. Like Ray Ray's Absolutely. Ray Ray kind of haunts his existence in some ways. Yeah, It does. And he even calls Desiree Ray, his girlfriend that, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. and, and it is, it's, it's supposed to haunt him. I think yeah. the, that's, yeah. and that like, I, I say this a lot, but Chekhov says fiction should explore questions and not necessarily answer them. Right. So often we come to fiction look, looking for answers or, yeah. or, so many readers do, but it's just, or at least Richard Dawkins to... does based on his Twitter post. <laughs> this right. week about I the saw that. Yeah. yeah. I saw that. Yeah. That's funny. But, um, but that, that's part of the question of yeah. how, do, how do we, how do people grieve? Yeah, totally. Well, and these um, are not, you know, I should say these are in a way, regular people, right? Like you're not writing about people who are, creative writing professors you know you're writing about people that are she's a social worker and your kid is and, and i wanted to ask you about that as it relates to uh dialogue and writing dialogue because i felt like a lot of the writing in this book was even more um intentionally clipped sentences and a lot of really straightforward you know vocabulary like do you want to talk about that kind of style choices you made yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tried to, I, I'm glad you mentioned vocabulary because I really um, feel like at least in some of the, the comments I've, I've read about the, the book having very simple prose or um, that, you know, these are not, um, these are not college professors. These are not medical doctors. These are not psychiatrists. <laughs> the people that I'm writing about are just sort of everyday people mm-hmm. and kind of blue collar. I mean, Ernest is just kind of a blue, retired blue collar man with um, unfortunately in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Um, and Maria is, is, a, is a social worker. Uh, uh, Sonia is, works at a library is, is in between jobs sort of. And, and, doesn't drive, but rides a bicycle and just um, uh, goes to the bars a lot at night. And so it's more of a blue collar sort of Oklahoma family, whether, whether and they're native, whether it's native or even if they were non-native. Um, I, wanted, I, I wanted them to speak in very sort of ordinary language. And so that means not writing very long flowery, um, very difficult sentences and using, um, which, by the way, I love reading. And and uh, but I, what what the book calls the book doesn't call for that, um, in 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 ways that certainly certainly deep Ellum and, and where that it's Sid talking don't either. Um, I hope that my the third one will be a little bit more verbose and. I really um, love the the style of of at least these last two books um the simplicity of it is really beautiful and, and it kind of like in some moments i felt like you know this feels this feels to me the way i felt like when i was reading cormac mccarthy's the road which yeah. is that the sentences are not they're they're not big there's you know they're relatively straightforward but like there are these just just very often punctuated by these wildly poignant moments in through simplistic 
you know, language or. Well, and, we, and we haven't talked language. much about Sonia. We haven't mentioned Sonia at all in her story. Um, mm -hmm. And I actually felt like there is a lot of passages in there that I had underlined where, mm. um, you know, it, it got you into her head in a way that, you know, I, I, I think you did a great job of writing from that first person perspective from women characters. And oh, thanks. I, totally. And really it didn't, and I think the, the highest or the, the best way to say that is really just like, I didn't even think about who the gender of the writer is. I was just in the right, character. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And there, there were also, you know, vocabulary wise, a number of uh, Cherokee words in here that I did underline and, and, and search. So I think, you know, people, uh, when they're starting out, uh, writing tend to just try to cram everything into one book and put in all of this vocabulary and language. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's actually really hard to, you know, tell a story with some authentic characters. And um, in, in a way, this is probably, I feel like maybe your most like plot driven story. That's mm -hmm. in a way it's a very basic plot, but in a way it is, every page is advancing that story. Yeah, it um, feels like a real convergence happening, like watching Magnolia or something where like you can feel the momentum of this story is moving towards a real feels, sense of climax. In Where the Dead's are talking, I felt like I was much more like, where's this gonna go? Where's this gonna go, you know? Yeah, um, it's, yeah. I think my editor really helped me make it much more propulsive hmm. in terms of yeah. moving moving it along. And, and it, and honestly, it was it was a lot more sort of all over the place when I turned it into her. And uh, so she she's the one that sort of helped me with the timeline. Yeah. She said, really, this just doesn't this take place over a week? And I said, yeah, probably right around yeah. a week. And so she's like, let's for the reader, let's, um, you know, give give the reader a little bit more of a clear timeline here with, right. with the dates. And uh, so. Um, she was really able to help me sort of keep my hands on the steering wheel and keep it, you know, you <laughs> steering know, wheel that doesn't fly off when you're while right. You're driving. Yeah. <laughs> right. Those are yeah. always good. Um, do, you, um, do you have a, a passage picked up, Brandon, that you'd want to read for us? We can give, give the listenership uh, sure. a specific flavor of, of what exactly we've been talking about for the last bit here. Yeah. Well, um, I have several here that I have Great. marked, but that I've been reading from, uh, what I've been doing readings. Oh yeah. Um, Get the best one. Unfortunately, all online <laughs> virtual readings. I'm sure, I'm sure these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I I'm going to read from Chala's section. Cool. Um, from toward the end. Beloved, regarding my death, I do not understand the reason why I awoke when I did. The soldier had taken my life and your life from us, from our family. We were no longer of this world. I saw only dark red, the color of blood. In death, as we slept beneath the earth with the worms and the cold mud and rocks, <clears throat> hearing the soulful howl of the coyotes and the drumming of our people, as we slept beneath the feet of those who stomped the ground and shook the heavens, I felt your mother's aching. I felt her suffering as if it were my own, a suffering so great I felt my spirit move restlessly in an unfathomable darkness. How long was I dead? Surely not long. 
I crawled out of the earth like a beast in the night with necklaces made of bear claws and gold with wet mud and worms matted to my hair, which hung to my chest. I crawled out of the grave and felt as strong and mighty as a horse, even though I knew I had died. I remembered the story of the tribe of root eaters and acorn eaters whose wives were buried in the same grave as their husbands. And I feared I would look down into the grave and see my wife. In the old story of the root and acorn eaters, a lighted pine knot was placed in a wife's hand. A rope was tied around her body with a bundle of pine knots and she was lowered into her husband's grave where she would die after the last pine knot was burned. I feared I would find my wife's body in the grave, burned and dead, and the fear consumed me like a great fire. When I looked down, I was happy to see that the grave was empty. And here I stood, not of flesh, but of spirit, not of bone or skin as I had known. In this world around me, I saw a great fire right there in the same world where I had lived a great fire spreading across the sky, heavy in flames, flashing and blinding. And I saw animals running to the trees and birds flying in the sky. Soon the birds changed into children and then disappeared into the flames. I saw columns of smoke leading to the heavens. I saw snakes with their heads chopped off. Their mouths were still biting. Their bodies slithered into the ground and turned into dust. The dust rose into more columns of smoke. I saw figures in that dust, figures whose faces I did not recognize, but whose bodies were strong, who rose up and drifted away as dust. They rose up and drifted as dust, falling into the great fire. And the sight was beyond anything I had ever dreamed. I saw the winged bodies of others forced into a vortex of wind and smoke, disappearing into the great fire yet I was not afraid. I could see for miles. I saw boys from my childhood dragging their dead mother around so that corn would grow. They were wailing in fear. I called out to them, but they couldn't hear me. Most of our people were at stockades waiting to be moved west. Our people were being forced out of our land. This I knew, but I could not understand why. My thoughts were cloudy and confused as they can be in sleep. I tried to remember my name, but I fell into a strange loss of thought. For what reason did I awake? Why did I see these visions in the night? I saw ox carts and soldiers with rifles. I heard the crying of children and saw our feeble elders being lifted into government wagons. I saw a flash of light across the sky. A pale mist swirled before me like a small tornado, holding the image of someone I recognized. You, beloved, a strange vision unlike anything I had seen before. I wasn't able to speak or call your name, and in an instant you dissolved. That's, uh, yeah, that's- I, I love that's, that. That's wonderful. Well, thank I mean, it's, thank it's you so much. Heart, heartbreaking and- um, apocalyptic oh, in very moving ways um well and earlier you had used this phrase uh ancestral trauma and mm -hmm. i think i think that's very real and you know I, I hope that more people um you know research what did happen to the 
not just to the Cherokees, but to, to all the tribes. And to, to me, this is one of the great, you know, original sins of the founding of this country is along with slavery is the way that the native populations were obliterated. And mm -hmm. if you ever travel to other countries and, and yeah. to go to, you know, Mexico or Brazil or uh, even Australia, you know, they don't have these reservations where people were removed to and yeah. their native populations were um, integrated better into society and not wholesale wiped out the way that ours were. Um, and I think it's, well, there's been genocides, colonial genocides in, in lots of places. Right. But like, yeah, some, some places have done a much better job of this than like New Zealand comes to mind as somewhat better ish than right. say Canada or just, the U S just particularly but. atrocious in the, in the U S and, um, I would say needlessly cruel and, Oh, Canada is uh, a pure horror show yeah. as well in this context. Um, yeah, yeah I, I teach social studies. Uh, 10 oh. I, I have in, in the past and you know there's a great deal of Canadian history that that we teach in our curriculum is indigenous history and yeah um, first first nations schools and yeah yeah up there and, and I have some students from first nations at oh, cool. IAIA in Santa Fe yeah um, and it's yeah it's uh it's so sad um and but so much, what I've learned over the years is that so much of that hasn't been even discussed in the classroom. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. In, there, in There is a, a hopeful burgeoning new sense of uh, like, at least from in British Columbia, like the Ministry of Education here in the last two years has put out a lot of new curriculum in like all of our courses that is mandating Indigenous First Nations content, worldview, um, ways of knowing and ways of learning. So there is like a, a, what I think is a really hopeful push towards more uh, education, more understanding of, of the ways in which colonial history just completely ravaged the people who were here before Europeans arrived. Um, yeah. So that makes me hopeful as, as an educator of getting to like, you know, I get to be a part of teaching more of this stuff and bringing more indigenous literature into an English classroom, for example. And um, well, and, and, and it's no exaggeration to say Brandon, the writing that you have done has probably brought as much attention to Cherokee causes as anyone in our lifetimes. And like, uh, really, you should be proud of what you've done so far. And, you know, the, the, the readers that you have brought into these characters and really made it real that it's not just, you know, something that happened in the past, but that it's still a trauma that is still ongoing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, the, and these generations are playing out you know every day there's another person who dies that remembers a story no one else did mm -hmm. and i, I think mm -hmm. you know you shedding light on this stuff like you say it's not history this is literature it's serving mm -hmm. a different the story's doing something else um, mm -hmm. and in a way that has its own power okay. i don't know if this made it down to you guys but um in the last about a week ago there's a discovery in kamloops british columbia which is um pretty close to where I grew up in Kelowna, where uh, through um, like infrared technology, a discovery was made under a previous residential school of 215 bodies of children that was in a completely unmarked uh, yeah. grave on the school grounds. Um, and our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, tweeted about how the residential school period was such a dark chapter in our history. And it's, you know, he 
he the language that was used in the tweet was like this is this was a bad thing that happened in the past and he just got eviscerated because everyone was like this is ongoing man like this trauma is here and it's present um and it's not going away anytime soon yeah Um, it's um i i encourage my native students to 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 write their stories and mm -hmm. to 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 keep the dialogue moving Mm -hmm. and and to to challenge themselves as to as a native what is it that they want to say what is it that they want to write about um and and why do they want i i i challenge them with those questions right to think about um what has not been said yet that you can you can say and i mean it's yeah, there's, it's so sad and, and there's so much more that needs to be said. And, and also um, on, on one hand, it's, it's becoming, I'm, I'm glad to, to see that more people are seeing the wide range of native writers out there who are writing about, about their tribes and the stories and, because yeah. every every tribe is different, totally, you know, and has different stories and different yeah. traditions, and some some things you can't write about, of course, like you know, I have to do a ceremony or something. But but there are um, there's there's a new there's a great middle grade uh, I can't think of the name of uh, the Harper Collins is uh, it's an imprint for Harper Collins, and I've, uh, I've, I've I've I can't think of the name of it, but there's a um, we'll link to it on the show notes of this episode. Yeah, send it to us later. But Bri- there's a there's a Navajo writer named Brian Young who's written a uh, got a brand new book out um, that is called um, Healer of the Water Monster. Hmm. That's a middle grade, and that, that comes out of a traditional Navajo story. Uh, and and these are stories that we haven't seen, especially for. Um, for younger readers before. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's encouraging that there's um, a lot more writers, a lot more literature that will become, continue to become available so that people totally. won't ask, ask the question of, uh, well, here's one native writer. <laughs> Who else should I read? Yeah. It's, yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm pretty hopeful about that. Like when I think of the landscape of Canadian literature right now, which I, I tend actually not to read all that much of in general, I just tend to read American fiction for mm. some reason. Mm. Um, but like we've got writers in Canada, like Tanya Tagak, who's an Inuit um, writer from, from Nunavut, the like most Northern um, territory in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, she does traditional throat singing as, as a performance art. And she, she's won uh, a lot of awards in Canada mm-hmm. for it. Richard Waganese comes to mind as well. Um, so there, there is like a, a really, uh, you know, hopeful burgeoning sense of like indigenous voices are being published and they're being listened to and heard on a level. I think that's, that's a lot more uh, in the forefront than what I grew up with, you know, as a kid going to high school in, in the late nineties. You know, like yeah. I just don't remember reading anything like that in, in did, classes. Did you grow up in Canada? You're Canadian? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, born in Vancouver. Specific? And most of my life was in Kelowna, BC, which okay. is just a couple hours north of Washington State. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there's a difference between, you know, works that existed and like things that are, are t- 
taught and things that are um, encouraged and widely read, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm sure, like say our whole lives, there's actually been great, you know, things you could learn, um, yeah, sure. but things that are like widely taught you know, that, yeah. that's, that's the big discussion. And like mandated by the public education. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. right. Yeah. Um, well, Brandon, this has been awesome. Um, if people want to follow you, read more, where should they get in touch? You're on social media. Do you want to put your handles out there? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, on Twitter, I'm, although I'm not on Twitter that much, honestly, I, uh, Twitter gives me severe anxiety yep that's um, fair <laughs> yeah it it really does and and i'm on it less and less and i i i i do i do get on there because i i um like to i know so many people share articles and stories and it's, it's become even a, a source you know for me to like oh wow this person has a new book coming out great now i can look it up you know or whatever but but i there it's it's, it's my Twitter handles at BW Hobson. Um, the, the much more comforting, I think outlet is, is Instagram for me because it's, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, sharing an image is. Uh, I get that. Uh, that's my favorite. If a little I more low one. stakes. It, it, yeah. It's a little less yeah. anxiety producing and actually can be like fun and pleasurable. Yes. Like, I, I find even, you know, hardcore Twitter user for a long time, I find myself <laughs> tweeting less and less. And yeah, like, wow. I find myself just getting more pissed off when I'm on there. And I'm like, well, it's, it's very, it's very depressing in a way that it's uh, the, one of the reasons I got, I mean, I was on Facebook for a long time and I just could not, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And, and you know, with, after the election in 2016, everything just, to me became, yeah it got really dark there yeah everything got very very dark and yeah. i just it gives me too much anxiety and i'm i'm i have enough anxiety uh just waking up in the morning and so, <laughs> totally. you know, yeah. it's like it's uh, um and and to put you know social media in in mm -hmm. front of me it's it's almost um, nauseating and so yeah uh but, but but i i i am on um I did see recently on Instagram, Brandon, that uh, like I followed Deb Olin Unferth, who oh, yeah. was recommended to us recently by Jessica Anthony, who was a guest a few shows ago. So I read Barn 8 and I thought it was phenomenal. I was like this. And then I saw she posted like you and her a couple of weeks ago, some just hanging out. And I was like, oh, man, all the, all these things yeah. are lining up for me. lately. She, yeah. she came through Las Cruces a couple of times last summer once. And then she came uh, right around Christmas or she had. Um, I think it was right around, right after Christmas, she came through here and we hung out. Yeah. And, uh, and it, she's, I've known her for, um, a long time because of, we both published in noon, the journal noon. Yeah. And, uh, but never actually, I met her at AWP, um, I think for the first time, like only like in 2015, it wasn't that long ago, but we've, uh, since really, um, uh, connected and, and cool. um, she's 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 an amazing writer her stories are so weird and <laughs> and you know and she's got such a great command of the sentence I feel like yeah uh, just a totally. powerful 
she can just write a, a, a good, powerful, um, direct sentence. And her, mm-hmm. I, I just, I've always liked her stories. And so, yeah, um, Barnett, I haven't read yet, but I, I, I have it. And, uh, yeah. but her, her other books, I hear vacations really great too. Vacations to fantastic. Yeah. 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 She's a really, really fascinating person to talk to. Yeah. Also. I mean, just um her life and uh um she she also teaches in the there well she's in, in Austin, she's Austin, Austin, right? Yeah. Yeah. Teaches uh through the for the prison and, and oh yeah. Uh Maybe. yeah, and, and uh so very we'll try, we'll try and get her on at some point soon yeah she's she's i, <laughs> I think talk to her. she yeah she's really fascinating yeah that's cool are there any other contemporary writers with whom you um you know either have friendships or you're really enamored with their work and you're like you people need to check out and know about this writer um wow there are so many uh, you know that i've, I've yeah. uh, d- developed you know through a community of um through AWP and there's just so many. I, I, I uh, uh, and then the people I teach with at IAIA, uh, Pam Houston and Tommy Orange, uh, Tony Jensen. We've got the, te- the there, there Tommy Orange book in our house and I'm, I'm hoping to get to it really soon. I think it's great. Yeah, he, um, yeah, he's a great guy. Cool. And uh, uh, that book, his, and I read his, um, or at least about 90 pages of his secret of, uh, She'll be coming out, I think, oh, next awesome. year. And cool. um, yeah, it's it's good stuff. He's he's a really really good writer. Actually, and the other thing I was going to mention too is I'm actually writing a children's uh, book um, that well, it's kind of a middle grade book uh, that I hope to finish by the end of the summer. Awesome. Uh, and only uh, I because I've never written one, but Scholastic already bought it. Wow, congrats. That's great. Uh, thanks. And and so I thought, well, now I've got to write it, right? Because <laughs> every, it's signed and, and and I'm like, wow, I can't believe it. Okay, I'll try Spent it. the you money. Know, Spent the money already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, otherwise I, I can't pay it back at this point, right? So, but but no, so I, I'm, I'm going to U-Cross uh, the residency in Wyoming the first two weeks in, in August, and I'm going to try to finish it up in um, those two weeks of solitude there. Awesome. And, uh, but, but then it's back to the, the bigger novel, which, um, which I'm, I'm excited about because I want it to be, I mean, again, it's part of this trilogy of native identity, but I want it to be, I, what I hope is um, a little bit more experimental, I guess, um, structurally, yeah. not, not in terms of language or anything. Um, but um, structure, structurally, I don't know. We'll we'll see. Well, uh, it, well I'm I like, I like it. Push the that. envelope. Put some weird shit in there. Bro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just put some weird shit in there. Yeah, we kind of like that, that stuff here on the show. Well, yeah. but you know, my book Desolation um, was my was actually my PhD uh, dissertation. Oh, cool. A lot of weird and, shit in this book. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, structure structurally. Yeah, it's everybody. Everybody will tell me that. God, the book's all over the place. What are, what was your what was your structure? Or did you just throw a bunch of shit together? And you know, and and I did try to have uh, you know a, a structure with that. And and 
the the problem is is I would love to sometimes talk to you guys just only about digressions in fiction. <laughs> only <laughs> good topic. And, and just have a topic of digressions in in Infinite Jest, in Gravity's Rainbow, in in uh, the Lost Scrapbook, and how these digressions structurally add to the overall experience book. yeah the overall experience of it right because people think digression you think this distraction but i, I think we can all agree yeah. no it's this is this is part of it right the experience I just, yeah i just remember all of my favorite professors in university were the ones who just they're talking about the subject they're supposed to be talking about and then they just go on a half an hour tangent right yeah semi but that was like that's when i would really perk up and be like okay this is this is where the cool stuff is happening but but i also think wallace would say you know that's what reality is it's fractured it's not all linear right and you know in the very port is a good well also just in the the middle of you writing something you know, oh, you get an email and, you know, now this email is in in your brain and, yeah. oh, someone walks in the room and says something to you. Is that a digression or is that just part of the fabric of your life? And that's your experience. Right. Yeah. And it's like, if you're trying to portray a very linear plot, sure. Someone who just goes over here and like plays a baseball game for 20 pages, I mean, that doesn't add to the plot and that would distract oh. someone. But if that's like, if you're trying to show the fabric of someone's life, I think, uh, you know, I also think there's some movies that do this really well. Um, and uh, I really love the Richard Linklater movies, the Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, like mm. um, Before Midnight, Ethan. which are, you know, Ethan Hawke, which are just yeah. like conversations. And like, in a way, the whole thing is a digression. Like, there's not a whole lot of plot, right? Like, they walk around. That's the plot. It's like, I'll right. meet up here. Like, I could describe the plot to you in like a page. But right. the whole thing is like two people falling in love and how you illustrate that is through these kind of conversations that bond people together. And often, yeah. you know, just like what would bond you and I, it's like, dude, let's talk about some music that's mentioned in the book now, or let's talk about this. Elliot yeah. Smith. You know, and it's like, yeah, yeah. that has nothing to do with like, <laughs> yeah. oh, you know, like how people create bonds are also people yeah. creating that bond with a book. And like, I create a bond with a book that does have, I would say non-traditional stuff, right? That it's not just like an Agatha Christie novel where it's like, who done it? I right. don't know. Like, <laughs> right. You know, I need something to bond me to the book that is a little more, uh, I, you know, yeah. ident- identify the, with. The book. You know, the the movie that does it the best is my. Oh, if you've seen My Dinner with Andre. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's that's Maybe. that's what all these other movies want to be. Is that right? Is that <laughs> movie? Yeah. Wallace Shawn. Um, I mean, for sure that that set the standard of like what a talking movie can do but actually think i've just discovered in the past year this movie that i really really love called la maman et la putain which is the mother and the whore a french movie by jean eustache that came out in 1973 and it's kind of the end of the french new wave and it's it's almost four hours long it's three and a half hours long and it's literally this of like a dude sitting in a cafe they go home He's got a woman there. They have a conversation. It's just people having conversations for four hours. There's and a long section about this movie in in uh, Helen DeWitt's The Last Samurai that I just finished. Wow. Well, I was like, why does this sound really familiar? Because oh, okay, I'm always yeah, talking just... about that. Well, <laughs> oh, there, wow. there's a book that just came out about that. So I think even My Dinner with Andre is like deeply influenced by this other movie mm. that's like just people in a cafe sitting and talking for like 
an hour and a half. Um, oh, yeah, can you send me the whenever you? I will happily. The, the title of that, I would, I would love to see that. Maybe. Yeah, it's you. You would. Everyone listening, go watch it. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but it's that sort of same thing of like, um, you know what what makes good art this way is it the digression itself or is it the plot is it the characters and it's like uh, it's people who are wired different i mean there's plenty of people who want to watch a movie that's just 90 minutes give me a story and a you know people happy ending and i'll be fine Mm -hmm. and there's other people who are just you know like you and i'm like i'll actually sit and watch people talk in a cafe for like three hours absolutely and 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 probably be just as compelled um by that reality and i think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so you said oh we should have this conversation about digressions and i'm like man that's actually kind of all i want to do right now it's like talk about talk yeah, about why like, our episodes are like t- over yeah. two hours i'm like sometimes because... you know what fuck it that's reality for me it's like my whole life is a digression from doing one thing to the next you know? i i totally agree with you because i feel like uh, and, and structure, we, we talk about, and I, I do this students all the time, we talk about, they, they don't understand structure, and they have this idea in their mind that they have to follow this linear timeline, right? And yes, in short stories, and I think especially if you're thinking about, yeah, the New York, the typical New Yorker story, or, or a story in Harper's or something, right, is, is going to sort of follow this this timeline and we teach that stuff and we talk about that stuff a lot, but let's, let's challenge that. And let's talk about something that doesn't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Successfully. Right. And, and um, what is it that is uh, working? What is, what is it that's working here structurally in the story in terms of these digressions? And Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, I I think all three of us are very interested in, um, fracture, the fractured narrative and, and certainly in reading the fractured narrative and, and how, that ex- how that adds to the experience of the book. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I think um, there's other books I could give as an example that do this very well. Savage Detectives, um, mm-hmm. Bologna is a, pretty much any Bologna novel is a great example of this. Yeah, and, sure. And there's plenty of uh, like whole parts of the book that are just like, and now I'm just going to tell you about this guy and his story. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. you go back to the other characters later, or, you know, like in 2666, the part about the crimes where it's like, he could do that in 10 pages or 70 pages or 80 yeah. pages. And it's like, it's repetitive. And yet that's what the heart of the book is, is getting you to experience that. I was thinking a lot about Bologna and and 2666 when I was working on my dissertation, when I was writing Desolation. And there's another guy named Curtis White. Oh, of course. A colleague of Wallace's, right? So um, his book, Requiem, his novel. Have you ever read Requiem? No, but I've read his new one. He's got a new book. I actually reviewed it. Um, But tell, tell us what Requiem's about. Oh, it follows the... Well, structurally, it's supposed to follow Mozart. I don't know much about, uh, but Mozart's Requiem. Okay. Um, but it's, oh, it's yeah. uh, you, talk, you talk about digressions. It's all over the place. And there's, you know, emails and, and it's, it's fractured and it's a, but it's a really funny, fun book. And yeah. my part of, um, and 
part of what bothers me, I think, right now is that people are trigger are really worried about so so worried about trigger warnings. Um, the more that I, I hear people talk about, but, and I have trigger warnings, uh, you know, <laughs> but but I don't. I, I don't know with art it's it, it feels and with books it feels very different to me it feels like I don't I I, I don't know about trigger people I, have become like you know there's a dead dog in this right yeah, it's a trigger I, warning I, I you know and I was like I gotta say I think some of that is being uh in the academic setting a lot I remember I I've read uh, I went to a reading one time where a guy was like there's a word in this story. I just want before I read, it's nipples. The word is nipples. <laughs> oh, and, you know, I have yeah. nipples. I'm a man. Like, I just don't want to offend anyone. And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, what is wrong with this? Exactly. And, and like, I, there's a big thing extreme. going on right now with like, you know, Elin Hildenbrand, this like woman who wrote a story and or novel and character makes kind of an offhand reference to Anne Frank and there was a huge Twitter eruption and she ended up pulling the line and getting them to change the book. Oh. And it's like, art should oh. exist outside of the Twitter sphere. You know, it should yeah. not, it should not be subject to the police showing up and saying, Oh, you can't say this that way, or you can't talk about this with that. It's like, I'm not doing it. This is the character in the book. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're free to not read it. Don't read it. Fine. Right, exactly, and 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 yeah, it's 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 gone way overboard. I I agree, and 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 that that's really with students. They are constantly asking me. I don't know. The younger each year, it feels like it's just getting worse and worse, and 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 my response is just getting more and more <laughs> of like fuck, fuck it, it. <laughs> right, whatever you want, man, right, whatever you yeah, want, yeah, right, whatever you want. I mean, I mean if, if art's not confrontational then like what what is it doing but to me it's not even confrontational you know, like, it's just, it's like truth and the yeah, lot of exactly. writers will, yeah, truth a lot of writers will tell you that you know they you know they wrote a book and it wasn't very good and it's because they were holding back they mm. were doing something that mm -hmm. was not that Gritty was not enough, true yeah. to them yeah. and they know like oh i should have actually just told this story about my dad but i didn't want to offend him and it's like well then you wrote a shitty story. You right. could have told the truth. Right. And like, I think Wallace yeah. has a line that's like, nonfiction is about things that are real, but fiction's about the truth. Things that yeah. are true. And, yeah. and yeah. if you can get that in your writing, it's fucking liquid gold. Yeah. And if, yeah. you can't, if you can't, it'll never flow for you. It'll never work for you. Because you're not, yeah. the purpose of your art, the heart's purpose of it is like, it's it's off like yeah right. well and those people those are the people i i don't want reading my work anyway i mean i want the people reading my work you know sure. who who are uh, want to you know uh, have the experience and and hopefully appreciate and engage in what i'm trying to do yeah. so Will you capture the messy, the messiness of life and the messiness of family and of pain and, and trauma? And we can't recommend enough to our audience. The Remove just came out on Echo Press, which is a subsidiary of um, HarperCollins, I think. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, HarperCollins. Cool. Uh, I was just at the bookstore a few days ago with my family and saw it on like the hot new wall. And I was like, oh, wow. awesome. This is cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Good so to good to see that it's it's making waves and getting out there. So um 
Brandon, thank you so much for your time. Do you have any final thoughts, anything we didn't cover that you wanted to, to riff about? Oh man. I, uh, I hope I can come back on, uh, at some point and <laughs> anytime. And, uh, yeah. All right. Just, we can uh, make it happen. Yeah. No, uh, I, there's, there's nothing. I mean, I, I could talk to you guys. But. Cool. Uh, well, um, we'll put all your contact stuff in the show notes and, uh, and people can find you, uh, wherever fine books are sold. Brandon, thanks so much again. It's been a pleasure talking, man. Thanks for having me. Catch me now as I say. I also love that we said all this stuff about how we're, we're like soft resetting the podcast. It's not that much about Wallace anymore. And then we just talk Talk about Wallace. Wallace. (laughs) That's great. I think that's, that's no problem at all. (laughs) It was kind of a pump fake, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Psych. Trust us. Yeah. At no, some we're still point, on we'll talk same bullshit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll talk yeah. less about it.